0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton,
1: originally airing on Sirius XM.
0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and find me on LinkedIn. Since the Dobbs decision, we've been considering what its implications are. We've been particularly concerned about what the loss of bodily autonomy will do to women's ability to remain in the workforce. Part of this concern is, of course, driven by our collective need for a diverse talent pool to drive innovation and create solutions that work for everybody. Another part is that women need to be able to stay in the workforce to ensure long-term financial stability for themselves and their families. But one thing we haven't addressed is the essential role that financial autonomy plays in protecting women from domestic violence. And given that one in four women are victims of severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime, this is a more urgent concern than many people realize, which is why I am so thrilled to have today's guest with us. Beverly Gooden is the author of Surviving, why we stay and how we leave abusive relationships. Beverly, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm thrilled to have you, Beverly, but I want to share a little bit more about you with our listeners, and then we're going to jump into the you know, pages of questions that I have for you. <laughs> so Beverly is the creator of the viral social media movement, hashtag why I stayed. She earned a master's degree in social justice from Loyola University, Chicago, where she wrote her thesis on institutional responses to single women experiencing intimate partner violence. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Time. she been interviewed on NPR's On Point and All Things Consider, Good Morning America, and The Today Show, and now Women at Work. So Bev, this book is so personal. It's so um, honest. It's sharing some really intense things and also immensely hopeful messages. Yes. Um, ta- help me understand why did you choose to write the book now?
1: yeah so i started a hashtag in 2014 the hashtag was called why i stayed and it was specifically in response to an incident of domestic violence that came out in the news um a gossip site released a video of a football player punching his wife in an elevator and then dragging her out and i started that hashtag but that was it i stopped um talking about myself really in terms of domestic violence. I never considered myself someone who would speak publicly and openly about my experience with abuse. And I was comfortable there. Like I said, I did the hashtag. I've you know, talked about it a little bit and I'm done. The reason I wanted to write this book is two part. Um, issue issue's not getting better. In fact, it's increasing. Um, one in four women and one in six men. Um, we don't have a lot of data on non-binary people, but the issue of domestic violence itself is getting worse over time. That made me want to write this book. But also all of the legislative decisions that have been happening recently compel me to speak out more about how domestic violence impacts women specifically and their futures. So I wanted to write this book um, for that reason but also I wanted to give people hope that's one thing that I'm really big on is you know yes there is the abuse and yes there is the escape but then what happens after how do you rebuild your life how do you reinvent your life and what do you do next and so those are the reasons I wanted to write this book and that's what I tried to explore in the book. Well, you did an amazing job of it. I have Thank to tell you. you, it was a really compelling
0: read. You're a really good storyteller, and Thank your you. inherent optimism and sense <laughs> of hope—it was infectious, Beth. I got to <laughs> tell you. Um, but before we go to that part and we talk about this okay. kind of joyous way that you reclaimed yeah. how to live your life, um, we've had some important stuff to unpack. So, yeah. start by helping us understand. What are the different forms of domestic abuse?
1: Yes. So back in the day, and, and by that I mean decades ago, when you heard abuse, you immediately thought of physical violence. And so now we've tried to expand the scope of relationship violence. And some of those forms are physical abuse, psychological abuse, verbal abuse. We try to include elder abuse in that as well. Spiritual abuse when it comes to faith communities, emotional abuse, and then financial abuse. And financial abuse is actually the most common form of abuse. And a lot of people don't know that. So how
0: can, so I have a bunch of notions of what I think financial abuse is, can you help explain it for people who are hearing this term for the first time?
1: Yes. So financial abuse is when someone, particularly a partner, uses money or other financial resources to control their partner. Control and power is a very central part of that. And so the goal of financial abuse, and some people call it economic abuse, but the goal is to have power over your partner and create dependency, Um, And that dependency, that financial dependency, that economic dependency makes it harder for that partner to leave the relationship. So
0: how does it manifest? How does it start? Because one of the things that I saw, I was learning from your story was that um, this kind of intimate partner abuse. It's a methodical process. Yes. It doesn't, it, it, and, it, and when you look back on it, you can see the pattern that was forming. So what yes. are some of the early things that that are on that path to economic
1: or financial abuse? You know, there's, I'm so glad you said that because they're so subtle. So for instance, when I met my ex-husband, we were both in college, he was an engineering major. I was a journalism major. <laughs> So, you know, one of us was, was probably going to make more money more quickly, (laughs) you know, so it wasn't the journalism major. (laughs) And so that's exactly what happened. And then soon it turned into, you know, you don't need to work as much because, you know, I make enough money to support us or, you know, a bit later it turned into, you don't need to work at all because I've got it for us. And that's kind of how it begins. And so it can look, it can look different ways. So it could be um, discouraging your partner from earning income at all, or taking that income from them, rerouting it to your bank account, or you have one bank account and one bank account only, and you're the only one with the debit card. If okay. So part.
0: I want to slow down for a minute because these are each important items. So yes. um, on this issue of not working, of stepping out of the workforce. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know there are a lot of families and a lot of women who are happy to not work. um, And that's how their families function. Um, And there's also the notion that when you say my husband was an engineer and he didn't, he, and he was like, you don't need to work. Um, But also in your book, you're telling a story that suggests that while he's getting an education and has a skill, um, you guys were not, what anyone would call well off money was not tight, at all. And it mattered.
1: Not so
0: for you, when you were making this decision to say, okay, honey, I won't mm-hmm. work. Um, what was going on inside your own head that made you say yes, despite the fact that you were still really worried about
1: money? Yeah. You know, I think that part of it was that I didn't, Want to have to work? I think that was an element of it. I wanted someone to take care of me, even if the amount was small. Um, I had a hard time finding a job, particularly in the fields that I went to school for. And it was, I don't know, and it was in a way relaxing to think mm-hmm. that you know there was a uh, someone out there that wanted to take care of my needs. And again, we didn't have a lot of money. It was, you know low middle income salary, but I felt okay with that. The problem was when I began to realize not having money meant my entire life was controlled by him. And that occurred to me over time. I didn't immediately think, okay, I'm not going to have money. He's in control. I thought, okay, well, we have money and it's in our control. What an abuser does is convince you that that is what is gonna happen and then flip it. So it becomes, you know, we have money, it's ours, it's okay to it's my money, I made it, you don't bring in any money and so you do what I say. And that's what happened in terms of my relationship. And that's a pattern throughout relationships that deal with financial abuse. And at this
0: stage of things, did you have your own checking account? What happened to it?
1: Yeah, when we met, I had my own checking account. We had separate checking accounts. As soon as we got married, we merged them. And I think back on that with a little bit of regret. um, Because at the end of our relationship, we had one bank account, one credit card, one car. I didn't have a car of my own. So every move I made financially, but also physically going anywhere was controlled by him. And so I didn't have my own bank account. I, um, I did work sporadically throughout the marriage whenever I needed to, whenever there needs to be more income, still didn't have my own bank account. When and you worked, what happened to your paycheck? It went into the single bank account. So you
0: basically turned it over to him. Yes. Yeah. And did and you was- have signature authority on
1: the bank account or did he? I did, but I didn't use it. I mean, we both, we both, we shared the bank account and I could have um, used it, but I was afraid of him.
0: So Bev, being afraid of him was a very real thing because in
1: your relationship, there wasn't just financial abuse, correct? Right. Um, There was physical abuse, verbal abuse. The majority of it was physical, though. So and it didn't start early. It started well into our dating relationship, which is how you get trapped. So we had been dating almost a year by the time he hit me for the first time. So when he did, I wasn't thinking that he was at fault. I was thinking it was an anomaly. You know, I was thinking, what did I do? To make him hit me because that's not the person that I knew. Little did I know that I was already trapped in what would become um, a long relationship of abuse. But it started with physical, and the physical really set me up for fear. You know, so by the time he controlled all of our finances, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have pushed back. You know, I wouldn't have said no, I don't want to spend that, or yes, I want to buy that. You know, I wouldn't have said that because. I was afraid to push back because pushing back for me meant uh, physical violence most of the time.
0: So I was really struck by something that you wrote about in relationship to believing it was your fault. Mm-hmm. And that, um, and while um, tell me if I'm expressing this right, but I, like a message should go out to anyone who's experienced this kind of abuse, that there's nothing that makes you yeah. deserve that. It is not nothing. your fault, but that there was an equation in your head that if it was your fault, then it meant that you could fix it.
1: Yes, yes.
0: How did you move past that?
1: It took a long time. And I'm so glad you bring up that part of the book, because I don't think we talk about that a lot as a society. Thinking that you can fix something that is broken is normal. You know, that feeling that you... um, are in control, and that this is something under your control, um, and you can fix what is broken. And I think that we do that because we remember when it wasn't broken. Because if it was broken from the beginning, we would have never dated this person, right? <laughs> like we wouldn't, you know, if they, if they, you know, if they did that from date one. I want your credit card, you know, we would never be in this relationship. But because we remember when it wasn't broken and when things were working as they should, we think we can return the relationship to that state whether or not we can. And so for the longest time, I thought I could fix it. I actually tricked myself into thinking that I was in control. If I could figure out what made him mad, I could control his temper. If I could figure out exactly how he wanted me to arrange the living room, I could control his temper. So for the longest time, I thought I was in control of the relationship but I wasn't, I was um, being managed by him. He was in control of all of it. And I just didn't see it that way because I think as women too, we're convinced that we are, so in control of everything that goes on in our household, even though nothing in history (laughs) tells us us that that's true. I mean, we are not even in control of our bodies at this point. So how in the world could we be in in control of our homes and our partners? It's just not realistic, but we get those messages that we are in control. So it's easy for someone like me or anyone to convince themselves that they can control this situation, that they can, uh, outsmart the uh, the person that's abusing was, you. how much of it was that he made
0: you feel like it was your fault too at, and with the sense of responsibility that came with that. Um
1: he, he 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 always made it feel like it was my fault. There was never a time when um and he said it was his fault. <laughs> no. Like he just said, you that's know, right. he never it's part of the problem. Yeah, it's part of the problem and so I think that 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 had a lot to do with it me thinking it was my fault but also most of it was was me remembering when he was good. You know, it was me remembering when everything was fine and it was beautiful and we were in love and like aching to get that person back mm-hmm. and thinking that I could. So multi-layered, obviously, thinking it's your fault, thinking you can control the outcome or control the behavior and just wanting that love back. So much of abuse and staying in abuse is just simply about love and wanting love and being in love and thinking love can conquer all regardless of what's going on. And I believed all that. You know, I, of course you did. Yeah. My parents have been married 45 years in September. So I've seen love work, you know, just in my (laughs) own household, you know? And so, I mean, I've seen them, you know, have hard times and come back together and, you know, work it out and I've seen it work. And so I thought, you know, if I can just figure out how to get it to work, it'll last and everything will be okay. And it'll be perfect again, but it wasn't. And it really is. It really is. So
0: that brings me back to something you mentioned in the beginning, which was hashtag why I stayed. Um, yes. And, you know, there are a lot of women, a lot of people who would say, honey, why don't you just get out? I would have left. I would have been out of there. And, yeah. and, and, as I understand it, the reason why you started the hashtag was because people were saying that when this athlete was abusing his, I think, then fiance in the elevator and she didn't leave. And um, you, this hashtag had dozens of reasons. So talk to me about that and why it was so important to share it.
1: You know, when that video came out and I saw the initial response, which to be honest with support for her, you know, it's really hard seeing the, the evidence of, of abuse. You know, we hear about it, but when you see someone be punched in the face and it's just a different type of jarring. But as soon as people learned that they had gotten married since that video happened, it turned. It changed to why would she stay with him? I would never stay with anyone who did that. I would never let anyone abuse me, just kind of things like that. And I felt so much shame in that moment, not necessarily being someone who was in an abusive relationship, but being someone who made the choice to stay. And so that is originally why I tweeted the reasons for staying. I didn't have an audience then. I wasn't I didn't have a lot of followers. I was just talking into the, <laughs> you know, kind of into the void, but it hit a note. And I think it's because We have a hunger as survivors, but as women specifically to talk about the issues that impact us and having to stay, making a choice to stay is one of those issues. The main reason why people stay is because of resources. You know, I think about how now we're living through inflation that has just like, you know, skyrocketed. Gas prices are unlike I've seen in a long time, you know, take that and think about how that impacts you. And me as someone who is not experiencing abuse. Imagine having to leave everything you know and start your life again. Maybe you have children, you have to pull them out of whatever school they're in, or maybe you have to flee. You just have to literally run and you have to uproot everything you know. It's hard for me to think about my mortgage. It's hard for me to think right. about, you know, if I would have to pay two months security deposit for a new place to live or an application fee, um, every health insurance, things like that. And so if we just think about that on a smaller scale, if we take all of the issues that we're facing financially or having to do with the resources and apply that to someone who is already experiencing trauma, emotional right. trauma, maybe physical trauma, and now we're asking them to add all these other issues in a time where they may not have issues of money their partners may be well off. You know, they may not have issues of hunger and housing and you know, they may not have those issues now. We're asking them to take on those issues in addition to their trauma. And that is not fair. We have to really take a moment and step back and think, why would someone stay if they don't have a choice? Why would they stay? Sometimes the choice, the safe choice is to stay. A lot of people don't know that women specifically experience violence. 70 times, They are 70 times more likely to experience violence in the two weeks following the time that they leave an abusive relationship. So you are putting yourself in more danger the moment you leave. Is that because the abuser
0: gets activated and aggravated yes. by the departure. Yes. and The abuse is about power. And if you've left, you've yes. eroded power.
1: So they have to assert power. Exactly that. It's a panic. It's an escalation. So when you are in control of some, I think about it like a shopping cart. This is a silly mm-hmm. example, but I think about it like that. So you're in the In the parking lot, you have your shopping cart and it's full of stuff and it starts to get away from you. If it's moving quickly, you panic, you run after it, you try to get it and grab it to get it back so you can control back. It is the same way, only dangerous. So when Mm -hmm. an abuser loses control, everything escalates. They try to get you back. Sometimes they'll try to like woo you and do the romance thing to see if that'll work. That doesn't work. And they try to use fear and threats and anger that may not work. And then a lot of times it turns fatal because they have lost control and the only way to get it back is to take power over you, even if it means ending your life. So leaving is not always safe. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so happy that the hashtag took off like it did because now people could see those reasons. Now you don't have to wonder about it. There was someone on the hashtag that said the reason that they stayed was because their husband had health insurance that was employer sponsored. And so you know by virtue of that, it's subsidized. And so if they left, they would have to find and afford quality, um, affordable healthcare, and they had a chronic health condition. Like, come on, Like this, right. is, this makes sense right like it makes sense that someone would think about that when they thought about leaving an abusive relationship and it's sad that these are the choices that we have to make but we live in a world where these are the choices that we have to make as women we have to make a choice to leave the state and try to financially find a, a way to get to a state that allows us to have abortions you know these are choices that we have to make and if we can think about it in that context surely we can think about it in the context of abuse and can you talk a bit about what does it
0: mean for women who are already experiencing experiencing domestic violence to lose this opportunity, um, to lose this bodily autonomy right now. Like, as you said, if they feel, you know, what would it mean for them to have to carry a child to term or, um, if they need, if they need to terminate a pregnancy, they're being beaten, they're being deprived nutrition.
1: They can't like, this can't go anywhere. Good. Right. And you make some good points about reproductive coercion. And that's a term that people use when someone who is abusive or someone who is going to be abusive um, tries to get you pregnant by um, hiding your birth control or, you know, um, uh, flushing it down the toilet or something like that or preventing you from getting it. Another example of reproductive coercion is if you are pregnant and they're preventing you from getting an abortion, so they won't drive you there, they won't help you pay for it, things like that. Or you are already pregnant and they are trying to control your movements. So the, the loss of access to choice, to abortion rights, always impacts domestic violence survivors, um, mainly in a lethal way, because we know that people who experience domestic violence and are pregnant are more at risk of fatal violence. It's throughout so much research that that happens. And so when we're taking away that choice for domestic violence survivors, we're, we're taking away their lives. We're taking away their lives because now we're telling you, you don't have the choice to leave your abuser. You don't get to do that. In fact, you have to have their child. You know, You have to raise your child with them. You don't get that choice. And I think that's a dangerous precedent for women in general, but specifically for women who are already vulnerable and at risk because we're telling them now you can't leave. You have to stay. Right. And, and that going into
0: um, parenthood, they are already traumatized in an yeah. ab- abusive environment. And that child's now going to be born into that same yeah. abusive environment.
1: Yeah. And the impacts of um, witnessing domestic violence on children are great. They grow up to have a specific type of trauma. They grow up to be hypersensitive. They grow up to um, always question their environments. They have trouble at school. They have trouble with learning because they're being raised in so much trauma. And so now we're impacting generations, Mm -hmm. right? So now we're not only impacting the woman involved or the birthing person involved, we are impacting so many people that come after that because those children are going to grow up with that specific trauma and then what?
0: Right. What do you we So we've hurt all of these lives in the process.
1: All of these lives and then the people that they'll meet maybe. I mean we just so you know you just don't know the ripple effects of it. You don't know when that child might get some help or might you know have that trauma recognized and by a counselor or a teacher or something and be able to help heal that trauma. We don't know if that will happen at all. And so we're impacting so many lives by this one choice. So, and yet going
0: full circle to the tweet that actually like made you, you went viral with this, is that the experience of the women who are victims, um, and survivors, it's so complex that Mm -hmm. to be, to blithely say, well, why don't you just leave? Um, We're not recognizing the many, many layers of complexity that are part of your lived experience.
1: Yeah. It's um, one of those things that I always think if, if we were to take a moment and think of all the complexities that we have in our own lives, just from day to day, Mm -hmm. from the time we wake up, if we're going to work. We get home from work, we, you know, the, all the things we do until the end of our days. Those are complex and we don't experience abuse. I don't know why we don't view victims of abuse that way, why we think that they have um, just kind of this superhuman ability to overcome any obstacle. They, we don't. They don't. They're experiencing traumas, and they're experiencing difficulties, and they're experiencing layers. Love is a layer. Um, recognizing someone's humanity is a layer. Financial control and coercion is a layer. You know, reproductive coercion is a layer. There are just so many layers and so many complexities that make domestic violence one of those issues that we really have to tread carefully when we talk about, because we never know. One, who around us is experiencing abuse, we don't know. One in four women. Right. It's statistically impossible for all of us not to know. You know, which someone. Is, which is why it is so incredibly important that we're talking about it today. Yeah.
0: So, right before our break, one of the things that we were talking about is that despite how much, how common the term of domestic abuse is, that we recognize that it is um, this unfortunate reality that exists in so many. People's lives, one in four women's yeah. lives, to be precise. There's also this ironic way that most people don't understand the many dimensions of it mm-hmm. and the depth of the pain that the, its victims and survivors experience. Yeah. And one of the things that's so remarkable about your book is that you've not only shared your own story, but you've helped us see these many dimensions of it, including thankfully, how you got out and how other people can do the same. And so I want to explore that a little bit. And I hope it's not um, too difficult. And I really appreciate your your courage and trust in talking about this. Um, So tell us, you, you know, you shared with us on the first half hour that you had been dating. The violence began after you'd been dating for a while for a lot of complicated personal, emotional reasons. You didn't yeah. leave, including a sense of guilt or responsibility, love, um, fear, but that at some point you, something made you leave. Mm-hmm. What was that? And how did you go about doing it?
1: Yeah, so I had been with him over two years, and one morning I woke up to him pushing me out of the bed, and I mention that specifically because every other time that there had been any case of physical violence, there was an interaction taking place. Um, And so that caused me to wrongfully be able to point to myself as the reason why it happened. But he messed up because he tips me off by put by waking me up that way, that I wasn't at fault. What what are you what are you doing when you're sleeping? You're not right. doing anything. You're not arguing. You're not doing provoking. You're not doing all the things that people um, say can be a cause for abuse. And so, I woke up that day and I started to run. And there was you know an altercation, but well there was an altercation. He he hit me, but that morning I realized that. It wasn't my fault. I also realized that I could die. And I know this might sound strange, but it never really crossed my mind that I might die before. Even like though it, he had
0: smashed your head into windows, yes. he had really beaten you. Yep.
1: I always thought that he would stop. And I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I want to make that point, right? Like when you're in an abusive relationship, your abuser is doing all they can to convince you that that time was the last time every time, you know, and because you love them and you want to believe them, you do. And I did. And so uh, throughout the whole relationship, I was, okay, this is the last time. This is the last time. All right. That was just, this is the last time for real this, and it never was. And so That morning was really my wake-up call because I learned that it wasn't my fault. I could make that connection that I wasn't doing anything to provoke it. And then with that connection, I realized this is out of my control. Like, this is not something that I have any power over, any control over. And if I have no power and control over it, that means that I could die. You know, that means that I could lose everything. Because one thing that we know for sure is that abuse is as you say, angered in, in power. It is, that is what it's about. It's about the power and it's about the control. And so I always think of it in terms of, when I think of relationships that are abusive, I think of it in terms of, is it controlling or is it empowering? You know, Because when you say empower, you say, I want you to choose what is best for you, uh, whatever you wanna do. You have full autonomy to make the choices you see fit. That is empowering. Control and power over someone is different. Control says, I want you to do what it is that I want. And I will use tactics to ensure that you bend to my will. So an abuser wants power, not to empower. They -hmm. want to control. And that is what abuse is anchored in. It's in controlling another person's actions thoughts, or behaviors by exerting harm and distress. And when I realized that was happening, I knew I had to get out.
0: So at this point though, um, he controls all the money. Yep. You don't have a car. He's at work with a car. How did, and even to the point where he knew if you were leaving the house or not, he could, he would track your phone. He could track, you know, if you spent a dime, he knew where and when. So um, how did you
1: specifically and literally get out of that house for the last time? So he didn't like to go grocery shopping. And so the only time that I had the car to myself with some cash was when I did the grocery shopping. And so I figured that I could take some of the grocery money every time I went grocery shopping and hide it away. And this had to be a a plan over time. This was a slow process. Yes. Oh, definitely. It was a lot of planning. It was a lot of strategy. I always say I could do any job in the world (laughs) when it comes to (laughs) like planning and strategy, just getting out of that marriage and so yes i plan to do things like hide um paperwork and id copies and hide grocery money and i even made an escape bag and, and i make those for other people now but all it is is the bag with toiletries um uh hand sanitizer wipes things like that it is what you would need the day after you left a relationship but so i want to i, I want
0: to zero in on this part because yeah. one is that having an escape like um recently had a family member in the hospital and I realized, Oh my God, a go bag. If somebody gets sick, you need something yes. in the hospital. Um, I've watched fiction where exciting journalists have a go bag for when right? they go to their glamorous, you know, international <laughs> reporting assignment, but this is a go bag. That is literally the, the only tools that you have to live yep. with when you yes. walk out of that house.
1: Yes, it is. It is all that you'll have. If you have to just immediately get out, um, it is all that I had when I left, you know, um, and it is your essentials. And I think a lot of times when we're thinking about escaping violence, we're thinking about the safety of the person and the end of, and that's it. But you need things, you know, you need to be able to brush your teeth and put on deodorant and wash your hair and wash, you know, you need clothes, you need things. So the escape bag is a tool and it is the tool that you use to put anything that you would need the next day to take so with you. Medication. Money. Medication. And I, of ID. Mm-hmm. Yes, copies of any important documents. So, birth certificates, or if you have children, their birth certificates, copies of those. if you do own a home,
0: the mortgage, that kind of stuff.
1: Yes, very practical things. Um, uh, What's the other thing I put in my bag? I put um, copies of the credit cards that we had, copies of, even though they were just, you know, one account, I need to copy some because what if he cut me off and I needed to prove that I, you know, so I just thought about that. Um, My resume. Right. I thought about I mean I did. I put my resume in there. Like copies of my resume. This is 2010, so um you still We you're still kind of that paper, paper. <laughs> right? Very much so, right? So I did that. I thought about what I specifically would need um as me and then what I would need as a person in the world the next day. And that's how I built the escape bag. And it looks different for everyone, but some things are very common like, you know, the toiletries. Everyone right. needs that. You need a copy of your identification right. if you lose your identification you need to be able to prove who you are and so if i could say one thing i would say that is one of the most important things make a copy of it make several copies of your ids put it in the bag give a copy to someone that you trust maybe at work or maybe a family member or something like that um, but an escape bag is a vital part of getting out well, another thing that i did is i went on to domestic violence websites the locals and the national ones and i just started to read well hiding it i started to read um what were ways to escape. So one of the ways was to call a local shelter and get the address ahead of time so that you could plan your bus route or, you know, now there's, you know, ride sharing. So plan your ride sharing route or whatever. That was one thing that I did. And so any domestic violence website will have like strategies and plans for that. But the ones that I used the most were the escape bag and then the planning the routes. Those are t- two really important things to me. So Bev, this issue of roots
0: is really important because in the book, mm. You were sharing how when you walked out that door, like the minute you set foot out that door, you're worried, is he going to follow me? Yes. So how did you, um, how did you figure out your route? And then what happened when you got there?
1: Yes. So I, weeks ahead of time, I called my local shelter. I asked them um, for the address. They did not give it to me. And that's when I learned that domestic violence shelters don't give out their shelter addresses. And so I got the administrative office's address, and I knew that I could get there. And so there was only... For, luckily for me, there was only one bus that came through our apartment complex, and that bus took you to a hub, and that hub could take you where you need to go. And so I just planned it out using Google Maps and things like that, how I would get there. It was more difficult trying to figure out how I would get the money to get on the bus because, <laughs> you know, that was a whole nother thing. Um, I was taking grocery money, but I was really trying to save that. I used some of it to open up a... Um, PO box and a storage unit. So I did some of that, but uh, the bus that I took, thankfully took cash. Now they only take bus cards. That's another story, (laughs) but took cash. And so I was able to get on that bus and plan my route. Um, But I was very fearful of him coming home. One thing that he used to do just to like remind me that he was in control is just show up at the apartment anytime he wanted. And so as I was leaving that apartment, I was afraid that he was going to do that. And so I started out, you know, walking and then I started to run just like quicker and quicker because I was afraid that he would show up and then my plan would be over because I would definitely either be harmed or just go home. Uh, I want to mention that one thing that I did, and I don't know if this applies to anyone else, but I didn't want to leave my ex-husband, you know, even at the very end, I was sad about it. And so in order to get past that emotion, I decided I had to lock myself out of the house. And so I left my keys on the on the counter in the kitchen, and I locked the door from the inside, and I closed it. And that's when I knew I couldn't change my mind. And so I said, I don't know if it applies to anyone else, because some people are really ready to leave. Um, some people are not. I was in the camp that was not. And so the way that I got over that hump, you know, as people say, is that I put safeguards in place to prevent myself from going back inside. Um, and then it was just a matter of executing my plan.
0: So once you got to the shelter, yeah, how did they receive you? And how did you get launched out of the shelter?
1: Yeah. So when I got to the shelter, first of all, I was lost. <laughs> I was lost trying to get to and the not shelter. Not just <laughs> metaphorically. That was literally <laughs> I was literally lost because the shelter didn't have a sign and I was not expecting that. So much of what I know now, I didn't know then. I just thought it was going to be a sign that said domestic violence agency. Like you just, <laughs> right. you just go and you walk in and they're very hidden and rightfully so. Appropriately. Appropriately, but I wasn't thinking that then. So I I went past it and then I realized that it should be in this spot. And I went to McDonald's and I was like, do you know what the domestic violence shelter is? Um, and they told me, but When I got there, I was, I want to say I immediately felt two things, really sad that I had to even be there in the first place, but also safe because at the door was a security guard and the security guard was so kind. I don't know if he was an off-duty officer or I don't know anything about him. I just know he was so kind and I didn't have an appointment. (laughs) You know, I probably wasn't supposed to be there, but he helped me get to where I needed to go. I spent about a week in that shelter, which was, I should mention, um, at capacity. Shelters need things. <laughs> like Shelters need mm-hmm. money. They need room to expand. The one I was at was at capacity, and so I spent part of that time um, on a sofa, which was way better than, you know, being abused at home, so not a complaint, but I spent that time there. I actually used their services for about six months. Their services were um, transportation passes, so bus passes they gave us. Um, we had a court advocate who didn't you know, help us file the paperwork, but they guided us in that way. I did a DIY divorce. I did it myself um, with the paperwork, but the shelter provided counseling and counseling therapy really saved my life. Um, I dealt with a lot of suicidal ideation and, you know, just meeting people in that shelter who were experiencing exactly what I was in some way healed me because it made me feel like I wasn't alone. And I got out of that shelter a few about a week later, I got out of the physical shelter, but then I used our services for six months. And from there, I got a temp job. I did a little line on my resume, but that's okay. <laughs> and <laughs> I learned it eventually, you know, but <laughs> I got a temp job um, and I was able to rent a room in a boarding house um, where there were college students. I wasn't in college, but it was what I could afford. Um, and that's how I got from home to shelter to starting a new life.
0: Um, as you're describing this, it's, um, it's kind of mind boggling to think about what the emotional experience was yeah. mixed with the practical tactical experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you noted that they provided counseling services and that you were yeah. having a suicidal ideation. And it's understandable. You were deeply traumatized at this point. You had been for some time. Um, yet, as I read the book and read your story, Bev, it sounds like you've emerged from a lot of hard work and a lot of different influences into a place of tremendous positivity.
1: Mm-hmm. How did you get there, Laura? It was it was hard. I mean, it wasn't. Um, I try to be really real with people and real honest about the fact that this Beverly is is the new version. <laughs> you know, this took a lot of um, a lot of therapy. I say therapy saved my life, and I don't mean that lightly. I've talked to someone um, at least once a month since I left, and that has helped me do a lot of things. One thing that's helped me do is really um, bring my emotions in. A lot of times when you're dealing with several different traumas, you're just everywhere, and you can't focus at work, and you can't focus at home and then everything's kind of all over the place. And it's really hard to move forward. Therapy helped me reel that in. It helped me uncover things that I had suppressed. So recently I learned that my fear of flying is actually not a fear of flying. It's actually a fear of not being in control. And so when I'm in a plane, I'm not in control anymore. I can't escape that. You know, I can't, I can't get on the bus and go to the shelter. Like I can't do anything, but be in someone else's hands. And that that is a that is a trauma response. I learned that in understandably. Therapy, you know? And so all those what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it took a lot of exploration. It took a lot of patience. One of the things that I love to do after I left is figure out who I was anymore, you know, because I wasn't the person that I was before I met him. That person was gone. Um, I, I t- I've tried to recover parts of her. Like I like to roller skate. I like to drink coffee, kind of like all those fun things. And part of the way I got to this person now is I, I take those things and I bring them into my daily life. So I'll roller skate when I want to. I do things that remind me that I'm free. And that's one thing that has worked to heal me over time is that if I wanna do something, I will do it if I'm not harming anyone. If I, um, I remind myself that I'm in control. A lot of it is self-talk. You know, I think that women specifically can speak to themselves in very unkind ways. And I've learned not to do that over time. I talk to myself very positively, I forgive myself. I'm very gentle with myself. And things that, these are things that I just learned. But I wanna say the reason I started this answer with it was not easy <laughs> is because I struggled for years you know, I was, I was homeless for a while. Um, I really had to navigate the social services system to get food stamps. They didn't want to give them to me because I was single. Um, and I didn't have any children. I finally ended up getting about $90 a month, the whole month in food stamps. Um, then I had to go to food banks. Everything was terrible at first, but I, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know? I don't need to laugh, but of course was, it, it was had have been awful. It was really bad at first and I say that because I think sometimes people will say, oh I'm I, I'm this way now because it was just positive and everything was uplifting and I had a wonderful journey. It was a terrible journey. <laughs> I don't I don't want anyone else to experience it. I would not go through it again if I could. you know some people of are like, course not. I lived this and I do it again to become the person I am. No, I would not. I no. absolutely would not wouldn't wouldn't want it again but you know I think part of how I have ended up in this space where I just want positivity is that I remember what it's like not to have it I remember what it's like not to be in control and every step I take from that moment to this moment is it's just a journey to regain control by doing very specific things what I want to do um Honoring myself when something feels bad. I didn't used to do that. If I have like that, they call it intuition, maybe, but you know, when something seems off, listening to myself helps me grow stronger. Um, and then just the, the kindness of strangers, honestly. Like <laughs> one of the jobs I got, she knew I didn't have that stuff <laughs> that I put on her resume. <laughs> she knew it. But she she gave knew you I a can shot. do it. But she gave me a shot and I will, I'll never forget her. She's still my friend. Um, and she gave me a shot. And so, that kind of brings me to one thing that I wanted to say is that for us, those of us who are not experiencing abuse, those of us who um, are in positions to give people shots or things like that, we have to do it. I, I say I could do any job in the world because I actually believe <laughs> I could do any job. In, I project manage, I <laughs> program manage. You know what I'm saying? I plan, I'm a planner. Well, maybe, you you, you know? rescued I, yourself. I rescued myself. And so I feel like, we have to give people chances. I'm constantly you know, in the pursuit of helping others and giving people chances. Even though the person I, I speak of knew I couldn't do those things on my resume, she believed that because of what I've been through, because I told her what I've been through that I would figure it out and I did 10 times over. So we have to give people chances.
0: So Beverly, one of the things that's interesting in your story is you grew up with, very close to your family, yeah. surrounded by community, your spiritual life, your community in the church, really important to you. You're a musician. Um, Yet while you were married, um, all of that community, it was one of the many things that went away as he exerted control. How did you
1: make your way back to family and community? My family is weirdly amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to think of the right word. Like they're just... But you get them T-shirts that just say weirdly
0: amazing? I have to, right? Like
1: they're just weirdly amazing. And I feel really lucky and blessed that I have that because it wasn't hard for me to find my way back. They were waiting, you know, my mom and I I have to say that my ex-husband knew the limits of probably me. My brother is my best friend. Um, he is the closest, I have known him all my life. <laughs> you know, he is, he is the closest person in the world to me. I could always talk to him. My husband never restricted my access to him. And I think he knew that that would be my breaking point. So that's the other thing about abusers. They know, they know what to and to not do. My did way your back- brother
0: know that you were being abused? He did no, not because, know. Because no. all of
1: your conversations were monitored? They were monitored, but also I didn't want him to know. I would have I would have never told him because I knew that he would worry. I knew that he would be mad at my at my ex-husband. And I knew that he wanted me to leave. And I wasn't ready to do that. Okay. So I, I didn't tell him. When he did find out, he was so devastated. Like so he he doesn't talk about it today. Like he was so hurt that I had been hurt. And um, I don't know how he deals with that. We don't really talk about it. I know that he does not like to mention my ex-husband, but even still, he was, he was there for me. My sister-in-law, my, who I just call my sister, but I say in law for clarification, but my brother's wife um, was one of the first people I told after I left. And she said something that I think about all the time. And I wrote about it. She said, whatever you want to do, we will support you. And what that did was work to to bring me to, to bring autonomy back in my life, you know, and it's something that seems so small, but it was so impactful in the moment, because she wasn't saying, you know, we want you to be in danger, you know, if you go back, you know you're stupid, you know we'll never talk to you again she didn't do any of that so there was no criticism and no was, judgment. You know, no judgment. That's why I say weirdly. <laughs> like there there is no criticism, no judgment. It was, you know, there was a lot of sadness. I think I learned years later that my parents were sad because they loved him too. And they felt like they'd lost him because mm-hmm. no one wanted him back around, you know? And so there was a lot of loss. There's a lot of sadness, but my family was there. They were there and they tried to help me as much as they could. My parents don't have a lot of money, but they would do things like, you know, this is before, you know, cash apps and stuff, but they would do things like send um, money to my new individual bank account that I, the same one I still have today. I'll never close it. Um, my new bank account, they would like put some money in there and $20 here and there, just kind of stuff to let them, to let me know they love me and they want to do more, but they can't. But they love me and and everything's going to be okay. And I felt that. So all of that to say, like, I found my way back to my family pretty easily because they were waiting for me, but the importance of community and a support system when someone is leaving abuse or someone has survived abuse can be the a matter of life and death. You know, had I not had my family there to like immediately catch me and support me emotionally, I would have gone back home. hundred mm-hmm. percent. I would have gone back to my husband easy because he was my family
0: right and and it was there that you had a home had a roof over your head had food in your mouth bit as
1: much as we can yeah
0: and also had the experience of you lived with the notion that that there was love that was part of this too so at the same time that you needed to save your own life you also had to give up those other things yeah
1: yeah, that was one of the hardest pieces of it was giving up the love. And I didn't know what to do with that for a long time. I I tried to redirect it into myself like I'm going to love myself more, you know, <laughs> like do all that stuff. But I found I, it was a more effective reroute to love others in in a weird way. Like I channeled that love into helping other domestic violence survivors. I channeled that love into a dog I had before you know like I just redirected it in other places
0: and Bev you've clearly directed it into this book (laughs) um, which I think gives um, takes your experience um, and just exponentially changes how many people can learn from it benefit from it and start to understand for people who want to learn more about you and what you do where can they find you
1: Absolutely. They can find me at Beverlygooden.com. My last name is spelled G-O-O-D-E-N. And my book is Surviving Why We Stay and How We Leave Abusive Relationships. And it is anywhere that books are sold for the library.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening today. If you or anyone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, please know that the National Domestic Violence Hotline is there for you. Call 1-800-799-7233 or text START to 88788. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And we'll shine.